Well, if you have God's word, stand with me. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. This is God's word. Have you ever heard of the literary term eucatastrophe? J.R. Tolkien coined it by combining two Greek words, you meaning good, and catastrophe meaning destruction. Eucatastrophe is when a good surprising twist comes out of apparently hopeless circumstances. I'll say that again. It's when a good surprising twist comes out of apparently hopeless circumstances. Tolkien explains that a eucatastrophe is the very heart of stories. He writes, eucatastrophe is the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. Tolkien uses this device many times throughout The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. We see this when the eagles rescue Bilbo and the dwarves out of the trees, when Gandalf is resurrected after his defeat in Moria, and when the eagles save Frodo and Samwise at the fires of Mount Doom. It's not just Tolkien that uses this literary device either. We also see it in Toy Story 3, which we're all very familiar with, when Woody, Buzz, and his friends are saved um, from the incinerator by the claw. We also see it in the Avengers Endgame, which we're probably all familiar with as well, um, when Tony Stark snaps his fingers and he brings back humanity from destruction. This eucatastrophe is truly the heart of a good story. And as we'll see in the book of Mark, eucatastrophe is the very heart of the gospel. Tolkien himself said this, the birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history. At the beginning of Mark 1, we find a eucatastrophe when Mark abruptly announces the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
Now think about this with me for a second. The Old Testament is riddled with failure after failure as God's people break covenant after covenant. It's clear from Genesis 3 to Malachi 4 that an unholy people cannot dwell with a holy God. And God's people must be feeling the consequences of their disobedience before John the Baptist comes on the scene. A good king does not rule over them, but an unholy Roman tyrant. And they're not feeling the blessings of God's revelation either, but 400 years of stumbling in silence. It's a bleak picture for humanity up to this point in history. However, Mark gives us a true eucatastrophe in his gospel. And this reversal will really come about in a way that nobody expected, not even Jesus' closest friends. The good news that Mark proclaims to us today is a victorious Messiah through suffering and death. This is a surprise that no one saw coming. And this is the good news that will indeed bring us to tears. The good catastrophe that Mark paints for us is that the Son of God suffered and died to reverse the effects of the fall and to usher in God's rule and reign. As y'all can probably tell, I'm really excited to start the book of Mark with you this morning. We will be in Mark's introduction found in chapter 1, verses um, 1 through 13, verses 1 through 13, where we're, click, where we're quickly and without hesitation plunged into the life of Jesus. Mark in his opening header is quite unique. It's just a one-verse thematic statement of the whole book. And next, we're immediately, and I use that word intentionally, thrust into the prologue about John the Baptist's ministry, Jesus' baptism, and his temptation. We have no genealogy, we have no birth announcement, we don't even have a birth account. Mark moves quickly to prove to his audience that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Well, I have three points for us this morning stemming from the text. We're going to first see the Messiah announced, and that's going to be in verses 2 through 8. We're going to then see the Messiah approved, which is verses 9 through 11, then the Messiah assessed verses 12 through 13. The Messiah announced, the Messiah approved, and the Messiah assessed. Well, before we dive into the all-important opening verse, I want to give us a quick background on the gospel. You see, this gospel was written anonymously, but church tradition tells us that John Mark, one of Barnabas's um, cousins, and also Peter's close companions, wrote the book. Papias, a bishop of Hierapolis, writing at about 140 AD, said this. He said, And the presbyter, that is the Apostle John, said this. Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately whatsoever he remembered. It was not, however, in exact order that he related the sayings or deeds of Christ. Justin Martyr, writing about 10 years later after this, called Mark's gospel the memoirs of Peter. And Irenaeus in 185 AD called John Mark the disciple and interpreter of Peter. You see, church history is pretty unanimous about John Mark writing this gospel. And he wrote this gospel probably to a mostly Gentile audience in Rome. To give you a few reasons as to why scholars come to this conclusion, first, 
Mark translates all of the Aramaic phrases. So he's writing to a people who probably did not understand Aramaic. Secondly, he, he uses several Latin expressions, and that would have been known in Rome. And then third, he carefully clarifies Jewish customs, and he omits many Jewish elements. All this evidence seems to support that Mark wrote this book for Gentile Christians, probably in Rome and probably suffering under Nero's persecution. Well, how does Mark begin this gospel? Look with me at verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's like there's a double purpose in Mark's opening header. As Mark describes in verses two through three, the beginning of the gospel, it certainly begins with Old Testament prophecy leading to John the Baptist preparing the way. But on the other hand, this verse not only links the prologue, but it also acts as a thesis statement of the book pointing far beyond chapter one. The word beginning, as we see, harkens us back to Genesis one, where God created the world. In Mark using the beginning, Mark shows us really that there's another creation at hand, a type of recreation through the Messiah, the Son of God. Well, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the central theme throughout the book. To give you a glimpse of what I mean, the title, the Son of God, is used at Jesus' baptism, and it's used at his transfiguration. And in the very, middle, the very middle of the book, the very point which the book pivots, Jesus asks this question to Peter. He says, who do people say that I am, and how does Peter respond? You are the Messiah. And then we see at the very end of the book, in Mark 15, the book climaxes with the centurion confessing after Jesus died that this man is truly the Son of God. All this, um, one writer said this. I thought this was a great quote. He said, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is like the proverbial red thread that runs throughout the book of Mark's gospel. Now, Mark's purpose in this thematic statement in verse 1, I want to say, is no less than persuasion. The good news is not simply facts about Jesus or advice on how to be like Jesus. This is euangelion. That's the Greek word good news. He writes this so that we could understand that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died for sinners and that we might respond to this death. Well, we're invited at the very opening verse to ask the question, who is this Jesus, the Son of God? And Mark, throughout the whole book, answers that very question for us. Well, now the good news of Jesus does not start at his arrival or even at John the Baptist's arrival. The good news of Jesus is rooted in the Old Testament scriptures, bearing witness about the one who would come. So to our first point, the Messiah announced. Mark uses very few Old Testament quotations since his audience was probably mostly Roman Gentiles. These quotes would have been less known to them. Nevertheless, Mark seems to go out of his way to link the beginning of the good news of Jesus with John the Baptist, who fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. It's like he's saying, 
you might not be as familiar with these Old Testament prophecies. However, it's of the utmost importance you understand that this time period, the very center of all history, was prophesied long before it came about. Look with me at verses 2 through 3. Mark writes this, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. Sometimes Kelsey and I will play a game called, where is that Bible verse found? I don't know if y'all play that either. We'll read a Bible verse and try to find the reference, try to give the reference. And I'll tell y'all, there's been some epic failures on our part. This was about a month ago. I read a verse and I was like, all right, I'm going to tell you it's in the Old Testament. And Kelsey responded, Philemon. It was really funny. I think she might have been joking. I don't know. But that's what she said. It was a funny blunder. And now many people look at Mark's opening Old Testament quote kind of in a similar way. He quotes three different Old Testament passages right here, but only one of them is found in Isaiah, yet he contributes all of them to Isaiah. The opening quote is from Exodus followed by Malachi, and the last is from Isaiah 40, verse 3. So my question is, did Mark utterly fail in his Bible reference? Well, absolutely not. There's no failure on Mark's part. He simply references the most well-known author. It was a common first century practice to select quotes from different sources, merge them together, and then attribute the block quote to the most well-known author. That's exactly what we see right here. He puts together these Old Testament references and attributes that to Isaiah, which was the most well-known prophet. Both Exodus and Malachi reference prophecies about a divinely ordained messenger who would go before the Messiah to prepare his way. Most people during that time assumed that this would be who? It would be Elijah, right? Because he was, he was um, taken, he did not die, but he was taken up to heaven in chariots of fire. And they thought that, right, um, rightfully so, because Malachi explicitly said that the one who's going to prepare the way is who? Elijah. Malachi explicitly says Elijah. But as we will see, it's John the Baptist who fulfilled those Old Testament prophecies, for he came in the spirit of Elijah. Nevertheless, what's amazing about Mark's references here in the Old Testament is who John the Baptist prefigures. Look at the pronouns with me in verses 2 through 3. I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. And then he goes down to say, prepare the way of the Lord. Make whose path straight? Make his path straight. You see, Mark is cluing us in that the very Messiah who will usher in God's rule and reign is no other than God himself. And I want to show you this. Look closely at the last phrase, make his path straight. This is so good. In in Isaiah, the direct quote is, to make straight a highway for God. But Mark, by the inspiration of the Spirit, clarifies it to his path. He doesn't say God's path, but he says his path. Why insert the pronoun his? Well, the answer is simple. So that we would make the fulfillment connection. 
that the promised coming of God has been fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. Mark clues us in at the very beginning that John the Baptist was sent to herald God himself, appearing in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, without hesitation, Mark moves to present John the Baptist as the fulfillment of the Old Testament quotations. Now, when we think about John the Baptist, just for a second, I think most people kind of picture this rough and tough, burly man calling people to turn or burn as he shoves handfuls of honey-dipped locusts in his mouth. It would kind of be like a, you know, a modern-day um, Westboro Baptist church as they're holding up signs that read, God is your enemy, repent or perish. Well, friends, although this is the prevailing view, John the Baptist, he was far from a hate-filled preacher trying to scare people away from hell. You see, God sent this man to call people back to himself. It's like everything about this scene with John the Baptist screams God's grace. Look with me at verses four through six. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Well, I want to focus first on the setting. Where did John come baptizing? Well, it, it wasn't in Jerusalem like you would picture where all the temple activity took place. No, it was in the middle of the wilderness. And we see wilderness, this word, twice up to this point. We see it in the Old Testament quotations, and we also see it in verse 4. On one level, the use of wilderness signals to us that John the Baptist is the man that fulfills these Old Testament prophecies. But on a deeper level, really the use of wilderness invites us to think back to Israel in the wilderness after they left Egypt. It's kind of like John the Baptist right here in Israel is a reenactment, kind of a recapitulation of, Egypt, of Israel in the wilderness. And so you might be thinking to yourself, well, how is that so? Well, first, the wilderness is where God provides for his people. And that's what he's doing right here. If you think back to God's people wandering in the desert, one of your first thoughts is that of provision. What was there to eat and drink in the desert? Yeah, nothing. That's the answer. Nothing. <laughs> nothing was there. But God provided manna from heaven and water from the rocks. Although God's not physically providing for his people in the Judean wilderness, he's doing something even better. He's providing for them spiritually. Remember, we've had 400 years of silence up to this point. And God finally speaks to his people, calling them to renew the covenant that they broke with him. In his great grace, God is calling his people back to him through repentance. And repentance is simply confession of sin and turning back to God. So we see God's provision right here in the wilderness. And we also see God preparing his people in the wilderness. If you remember in Exodus 19, right before God met with his people in the wilderness on Mount Sinai, Moses called them in verses 10 through 11 to wash their clothes and be prepared by the third day. 
For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Did y'all catch that? This physically this physical washing of their clothes symbolized their need to be holy before they came into the presence of God. Well, like Moses on Mount Sinai, John the Baptist is reenacting this very moment. He's imploring people to be prepared to come face to face with the living God. That's amazing to think about, that he's preparing the way for God to come, and he's calling them Be prepared, and the way to do that is through baptism. That's full immersion in the Jordan, which was based upon a common first century means of ritual cleansing. Well, again, I want to reiterate that everything about this scene screams God's grace. What is God doing for Israel, a disobedient, covenant-breaking people? Well, he's graciously preparing them to meet Jesus by calling them to turn from their sins. Well, friend, if you are here and you do not consider yourself a Christian, I want to say that it's like the Lord is doing that very same thing for you right now. He's preparing for you to meet Jesus when he returns. And I want to say he's doing that in such a gracious manner. And you might ask, well, why is that gracious? Because you're here on this Sunday morning hearing about the good news of Jesus Christ who died on the cross so that we might be saved. But friends, you have to respond. Look with me at verse 5. That's what Israel did. They responded. Verse 5 said this, The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. You see, throngs of people responded to John the Baptist's call to prepare for Jesus' coming. And how did they respond? Well, they responded by confessing their sins and in faith getting baptized. Well, friend, I want to tell you that God is calling you this very morning to respond. And my question is, will you? Will you respond to God's gracious call? I think the most loving thing that we could tell you right now is that you are not prepared for when Jesus comes. You're not. Why are you not prepared? Because you're sinful. Because you're going to stand before a holy God apart from Christ and be judged for all eternity. That's what the scriptures say. But God is graciously telling you that there's a way in which you can be prepared. There's a way in which you can turn. There's a way in which you can cast yourself on Jesus who lived the life that you could not live and died the death that you deserve. We're calling you to respond. The question is, will you? Well, before we move on to our next point, I just want to point out one more monumental truth in this whole scene. If you look at John the Baptist, literally everything about him screams Old Testament prophet. Sinclair Ferguson helpfully wrote this. He said, everything about John told people he was a prophet. He was in the mold of Elijah. His clothing was desert wear. His diet was desert food. He stood out from his contemporaries as clearly and recognizably as his great predecessor. And as we saw in verses 4 through 5, the prophet's message was calling people to return to their God. That is foretelling, right? That's telling them what God said and is calling them back to God. So the prophet's message was foretelling, 
but it was also foretelling, it was telling the future. And we see John the Baptist doing both. Look with me as he prophesies about the future in verse seven. John the Baptist prophesies, one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This right here is a monumental turning point in all of human history. What John the Baptist prophesied cannot be overlooked. He's the final Old Testament prophet asserting that someone is going to come that's going to reverse the effects of the fall. God has spoken through prophet after prophet for centuries, declaring that this Messiah was going to establish his rule and reign, and John the Baptist stands as the very last prophet proclaiming that truth. And now you might ask, well, why is that so monumental? Well, I think the writer of Hebrews tells us this very truth. Hebrews 1 says this. This is so good. He said, long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by what? By his son, Human history will move from hearing about God through the prophets to hearing, to hearing by God, by his very own son. A turning point in human history has truly come upon us. Well, John the Baptist, like any other prophet of old, will get to lay his eyes on, hear from, and even touch the very Messiah that he was called to herald. We come to our second point, the Messiah approved in verses nine through 11. Look with me there. Mark writes, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. If you look at verse nine, you can see really two clear paradoxical statements. First, we see that in those days, Jesus came from where? From Nazareth in Galilee. Now think for a minute what we've heard so far. This Jesus, the very son of God, was much more powerful than John the Baptist baptizing with the Holy Spirit. But in verse nine, the very first introduction of Jesus as he walks on the scene is that he's from a small country in a very obscure region. Well, secondly, I think even more paradoxical is the statement at the end of verse nine, that John baptized Jesus in the Jordan. We gotta ask the question, how is that even possible? Again, John baptized with water, but Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. On the surface, both of these statements in verse nine they seem quite absurd. Jesus comes from a podunk town to get baptized by John with every other sinful Israelite. Well, brothers and sisters, although it might seem absurd on the surface, to understand Jesus and the gospel is really to grasp the very idea of paradox. The rich became poor. He who knew no sin became sin. Jesus came in both power and weakness. He came to heal the sick and bring the sword. The gospel is both foolishness and wisdom. 
grasping these paradoxes really helps us affirm the truths of Scripture that might seem mysterious to us. You see, the Christian, they move towards these paradoxical statements in trust because the Bible says them. But those who stumble over them are those that are unbelievers that do not understand the word of God. So I do want to say that although this might seem absurd on the surface that John baptized Jesus, we must ask the question, why? Why did Jesus step into those crowded waters? Well, about 10 years ago in Haiti, I passed a body of water where locals would wash their clothes and bathe themselves. Also, that body of water seemed to collect sewage water from the village. That water, it was far from clean. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, I don't think I could bathe my clothes, or or I don't think I could wash my clothes in that water. I don't think I could physically bathe myself in that polluted water. Well, friends, I want to tell you the waters of the Jordan, they were far more polluted than that Haitian lake. All the Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem, they were going to be baptized by John. The Jordan waters reeked of Israelite sin, yet Jesus walked into those polluted waters to identify with unclean sinners. One commentary helpfully said, what we have here is Jesus' public acknowledgement that he had come to stand where sinners should stand, receive what they deserve, and in return, give his gift of grace and fellowship with God to others. Brothers and sisters, I want us to stare at the grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the perfectly sinless one, the perfectly clean, the perfectly righteous, stepped into those polluted waters. Why? To sympathize and align himself with sinners so that we might be reconciled back to God. What followed when he arose from the waters gives us a crystal clear understanding of just who this man from Nazareth in Galilee truly is. Look with me at verse 10. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. If you look with me at the phrase torn open in verse 10, Mark employs this word torn only twice in his gospel. First, it's right here. And then secondly, do y'all know where else it's, um, y'all know where else that John uses it? Torn? Do what? In Mark's gospel? The temple. Did somebody say the temple? Yeah, when the temple, when the curtain was torn from top to bottom. That's exactly right. I believe he's teaching us something right here about the Spirit of God resting on his people. The heavens were torn open as the long-awaited Spirit came to rest on the Messiah at Jesus' baptism. And the curtain was torn open at Jesus' death, signaling that God had once again come to dwell with his people. Well, after the heavens were torn open, we have both this visible and verbal approval of Jesus from Nazareth. Who is this man and what has he come to do? Well, this very baptism answers these questions. These questions are answered through both a visible and verbal approval from the Father and the Spirit. We see the Trinity present right here. First, we see a verbal approval. 
in verse 10, the Spirit descended on him like a dove. God's Spirit resting on Jesus was prophesied in Isaiah 64, verse 1. The text reads, The glory of the Most High shall burst forth upon him, and the spirit of understanding and sanctification shall rest upon him. You see, here's a visible picture foretold by Isaiah of Jesus being the very Messiah who would usher in God's rule and reign. I'm not exactly sure what the imagery of the dove signifies. Some people say the dove was just the most common bird, but I think there's deeper meaning there. When you think about the dove, what do you think about? You think about Noah, right? When Noah sent out the dove and the dove didn't come back, signifying what? That judgment was over. And I think the dove descending on Jesus kind of shows us that this end time judgment, that Jesus is now here preaching the gospel, the very good news of how we are saved. Well, secondly, we see a verbal approval. We see a theophany, an appearance of God in verse 11, where God the Father speaks from heaven. Mark writes in verse 11, And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. You see, God's voice from heaven, it bears witness to Jesus' identity. What does it tell us? Well, first, in the Father quoting this, really brings together two Old Testament quotations. One is Psalm 2, verse 7, and the other is Isaiah 42, verse 1. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, Isaiah writes, This is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. We heard Jack read those very words. In saying to Jesus, I am well pleased, God verbally affirms that Jesus is the messianic servant prophesied in Isaiah who will establish perfect justice on the earth. And I want to say this is really important to understand. It's helpful when you read your Bible, not just within Mark, but seeing the whole meta-narrative of Scripture. All of God's covenant heads, they failed to love God. They failed to represent God. They failed to bring justice to the nations. Adam, Noah, Moses, Israel, and David, they completely failed. But God was not done with his people. He promised to send his true son, who is the last Adam and David's greater son, to perfectly obey the Lord and bring justice upon the earth. God is declaring at this very moment that his son is this very servant. But how? I want to ask the question, how can Jesus do what Adam, Moses, and David couldn't do? Well, that's where Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 comes in. And the Father saying that you are my son, he's bearing witness to the very fact that Jesus has been God's son for all eternity. What Mark wrote in verse 1 is spoken from the very mouth of the Father at Jesus' baptism. The Messiah is, in fact, God's very son, who has been his son from eternity past. In fact, this is the very grounds by which the Messiah can accomplish perfect obedience to the Father and bring justice to all the nations. This Messiah, the eternal Son, the perfect true image of God, the exact representation of the Father, he's able to perfectly fulfill his Father's will. 
Jesus is the Messiah. He's the beloved son with whom God is well pleased. And David Wells wrote this. I thought this was a good one-liner. He says, this was visibly signaled and audibly declared at Jesus's baptism. Well, Christ Fellowship, one application for us is simply this. If you are united to Christ, well, then you're God's beloved son or daughter, and he is well pleased with you. This approval that the Lord declares for Jesus is also for everyone in union with his son. And I think most of us need to hear that truth this morning. I think we come into Sunday morning service sometime beaten down by the world, our flesh, and our sin. We feel as if we are failures and the Lord looks upon us like a school principal looks upon a delinquent student found in her office. And I want to say that is the furthest thing from the truth. God looks on you, Christian, with divine love and divine favor. Your sins have been paid for. Your obedience has been filled. God's wrath has been satisfied. Your eternal destiny has been secured. Your union with Christ is unbreakable, indissoluble, and permanent. Thus, this morning, you are sitting in this very room as God's beloved son and daughter, and he is well pleased with you. In Christ Fellowship, I just want to call you to hang on to that very truth in the coming week. Hang on to it like a beggar hangs on to fresh bread. Like a little child clinging to her mother's leg. Like a mountain climber gripping to his rope. This type of truth will sustain us in our hardest days. Well, following Jesus' inauguration of his public ministry... He doesn't throw himself a celebration. He doesn't even start preaching the gospel. No, God's beloved son is thrust out into the wilderness by God himself. In this next section, just as Israel walked through the waters of the Red Sea, then was tested in the wilderness for 40 days, Jesus is plunged into the waters, and then he finds himself in the wilderness being tested, being tempted by the devil for 40 days. All right, so we come to our last point, the Messiah assessed. Now, Mark's accounts of Jesus, for the most part, they're much shorter than the other gospel writers. And that's exactly what we see here. We only get two verses of his temptation. And I want to say something quickly. I think there is a temptation for us to, when we get these short kind of accounts in Mark, to then go to places like Matthew or go to places like Luke and kind of fill them out. But Mark wrote these two verses for a specific reason. I think we need to stay in Mark to see what Mark's trying to tell us. He has a purpose for saying what he does. So let's look at verse 12. Mark writes this, Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. As I was thinking about it, it was like, why did Mark just spend two short verses on Jesus's temptation? I kept thinking why. And then I read this quote from Peter Orr and I thought, you know what? That makes perfect sense. Peter Orr writes this. He says, It underlines that Jesus' life and ministry unfolds against the backdrop of cosmic conflict. 
On one side stands Jesus and his angels, and on the other side stands, stands Satan and his demons. You see, Satan is referred to throughout the scriptures as the God of this world, the prince of the power of air that enslaves mankind. And Jesus, from the start of his ministry, he enters into this cosmic conflict with the devil. But I think we have to ask the question, how? How can that be? God cannot be tempted by sin or Satan. How can Jesus? Well, it's because of his human nature. Jesus, in taking on humanity, he was subjected to all things, even temptation. But why would he do that? Jesus didn't need to overcome the devil. He didn't need to be saved. Why did he subject himself to that temptation? Well, friends, the Spirit sent Jesus into that very desert so that he could rescue his people from the effects of the fall. Jesus going into that desert, he had to undo what Adam did in the garden. I think this might have been the best quote that I read all week. Sinclair Ferguson said, Jesus had to enter into the world not as Adam found it, but as Adam left it. I'm not totally sure why Mark mentions wild animals right here, but I think he might be distinguishing between the first Adam's temptation and the last Adam's temptation. Adam was tempted in a glorious garden where all the animals were subjected to him. Nevertheless, Jesus' temptation, it was in the bare wilderness where he was surrounded by dangerous animals. Jesus stepped into a dangerous, barren, sinful, fallen, and polluted world to subject himself to temptation and constant conflict with the devil so that his people might be ushered back into his glorious presence, so that he might undo what Adam did in the garden, so that God's people might finally be able to taste the fruit of the tree of life. The Son of God condescended himself to temptation and conflict with the devil for you and for me. What a glorious Savior. And we see right here that he was tested, that he was assessed, and what happened? He proved to be our perfect covenant head. We want to end our time with just two observations about temptation. Number one, temptation and sin are not the same thing. They obviously can't be because Jesus was tempted, but he never sinned. Friends, the devil wants nothing more than for us to conflate temptation and sin. But temptation and sin, again, they're not the same thing. Jesus was tempted and remained sinless. Nevertheless, in us having unwanted thoughts that come upon us, sudden sinful urges that overtake us, or random immoral memories that pop up, some of us perceive those very temptations as sin. And what happens when we do that? Well, guilt overtakes us. But friends, if these thoughts are not of you, well, then they clearly show that they do not arise from you. They arise from somewhere outside. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, these thoughts, if you hate them, are none of yours, but are injections of the devil, for which he is responsible and not you. If you strive against them, they are no more yours than that of cursings and falsehoods of rioters in the street. So what do we do when these unwanted thoughts come upon us? Well, we cast ourselves on Jesus. We, re we resist the devil through his word. 
And we remember that these temptations are only temptations. And the amazing thing about the Bible is that God shows us that he's actually sovereign over these temptations and he's using those temptations for our very sanctification. Thomas Brooks in Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices writes this. He says, temptation is God's school wherein he gives his people the clearest and the sweetest discoveries of his love. A school wherein God teaches his people to be more frequent and fervent in duty. What the devil means for evil, God uses it for good for our sanctification. Look at temptation in this light. And finally, I want to say those most tempted are usually those most useful for God. Thomas Brooks, once again writing on temptation, says this. He says, Christ himself was most near, most dear, most innocent, and most excellent, and yet none as so much tempted as Christ. Friend, if you're feeling the onslaught of temptation at this moment, know that your temptation shows that you are valuable to God. A thief never goes after a beggar. A tiger never hunts for ants. And the FBI never goes after those with misdemeanors. Likewise, Satan doesn't usually go after those who are ineffective for the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, start to look at your temptation in this light as well. It's very natural for God's people to be tempted because Satan wants nothing more than to wreck our Christian lives. Temptation actually displays that we are beloved by God and useful for his kingdom. I pray in seeing temptation in this light, it would help us fight all the more. Well, Christ Fellowship, to land the plane, as I stated at the beginning of the sermon, I'm excited for us to journey in the book of Mark. The book of Mark is so much more than history. It's so much more than a biography of Jesus. It is good news about Jesus the Christ, who is the Son of God. And I pray as we open up the book of Mark and stare at this Jesus, we would love him more. We would worship him more, that we would grow in more and more likeness of him. Let us pray.